This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Well, good afternoon, everyone. How are you? Uh, Colonel, I want to compliment you. There is not a single piece of paper in front of any one of these midshipmen, and I take that to mean they have minds like steel traps. And everything said to you will stay and remain, won't it? And we can talk about it later, and you won't need to take a note. Is that right? Yes, sir. And as for the, uh, the civilians in the room, God bless you, you got paper, because <laughs> I'd be with you. I, I couldn't get through anything like this without a piece of paper. Um, let me add my uh, well, uh, thanks to uh, the Ryan Center and to Dr. Sheehan. Um, she and I have uh, known each other uh, longer than she would care to admit. Um, and, uh, and I am considerably older than she is, so that speaks to her credit. Um, and I wanted today to uh, talk a little bit about the way in which Professor Rood uh, taught. Because I think um, what's interesting and the reason a number of us who were his students uh, have wanted to come and talk to all of you and particularly to people here at at Villanova is, um, is because he had a way to cause one to think about how to think about international relations. Um, I studied with the man for the better part of uh, four or five years and uh, I don't remember an occasion uh, where he told me what I ought to think about anything. Not once. A lot of facts, um, but never once did he say, you should think about this this way. And as time went on, and, uh, and I had the opportunity to serve in various places in the public and the private sector, that training um, stood me for sure in good stead. Uh, and I wanted and, and was delighted to accept the invitation to come up and, and talk a little bit about that technique uh, and see if I could impart to you in some small way, uh, the kind of, of uh, inspiration uh, he, uh, Dr. Root, imparted to legions of students. I mean, he taught for a long time, and, um, and he had a very loyal set of students, um, and they're all uh, very grateful, as am I, to have had him as a professor. Now, each of us who had the privilege of attending even one of uh, Professor Root's uh, classes has an indelible impression of a slight, wispy-haired, soft-spoken gentleman teaching us about the hard realities of life as they were made manifest in the relations among nations. And he was only about yay tall. Uh, maybe weighed 170 pounds, maybe 150 by the time uh, I had gotten to him. Um, previously, uh, Dr. J.D. Crouch uh, was here to talk in the inaugural lecture two years ago. And Dr. Chris Harmon uh, delivered the lecture last year. Um, and, and they, for those of you who were here, uh, may have recalled their, char their, their characterization of Professor Root. Um, as Brenda said, uh, he was proud to have served in Patton's Army, Third Army. And he, will tell, he would have told you that he was delighted to have risen to what he considered the most treasured rank of all, which was uh, private first class. Um, he made of himself uh, probably uh, 
uh, one of the most influential, but arguably the least well-known teachers of international relations and the subject of statesmanship. Now I say that um, because there's hardly anybody in this room who's ever heard of him. <laughs> and yet I can tell you that Dr. Crouch, for example, uh, ended up as the Deputy National Security Advisor. Um, Dr. Harmon has a senior position out in the Asia Pacific Center. Um, a number of his students um, ended up in very high positions. One is the director of the Arms Control and Disarmament Agency. So he has left a legacy of people behind him, Dr. Rude did, um, who have attained very high levels of, of accomplishment both in the public sector and the private sector. And amongst those who entered into the teaching profession, uh, he has students out at Claremont um, Graduate School, um, USC, Missouri State, Hillsdale, Dallas, Azusa, Ashland, Villanova, Michigan State. They're everywhere. Um, and so he continues to have an influence on the teaching of international relations and statesmanship well beyond uh, his years. Um, now, as easily as he, Dr. Root, expressed himself in the classroom, he was, in the nearly same measure, resistant to putting his thoughts into writing. Now, those of us who witnessed it will never forget and always be grateful to one of our professors who, who recently passed away, Dr. Harry Jaffa, a colleague of, of Dr. Root's, who, for years, badgered him into writing his one major book. And uh, Marjorie Jaffa, Professor Jaffa's wife, actually typed it. Okay, that this is how much it took to get this man to write a book. Um, but apart from the book, which was called Kingdoms of the Blind, uh, and a prize-winning essay called Distant Ramparts, and I would encourage any of you here interested in the era of the late 60s, early 70s, and the Vietnam War, to go over to the library here and pull it up because while it is uh, a, a, an essay about the importance of Southeast Asia, it is in fact a classic um, treatise on international relations. So I, I would urge you to go get it. It's not very long, it's not very difficult uh, to get through. But because there's so little of his writing, I also wanted to put in a plug for a book that was done by the aforementioned Dr. Crouch and, and Dr. Garrity, Pat Garrity, um, the title of which is You Run the Show, or the show runs you. Okay? That was one of the classic expressions from Professor Rood. Okay? You run the show, or the show runs you. Now, um, that seems fairly bald, and seems a little bold, and seems so 20th century. But if you stop and think about it for a bit, and you think about the context of international relations, he's probably not that far off. And we're going to talk about that here today. Now, Dr. Rude taught with the conviction that international relations are unforgiving, absolutely unforgiving, hence you run the show or the show runs you. And the opening passage of Kingdoms of the Blind uh, goes this way. It is not a defect to pray for peace and to hope there will be no war. But those who predict war have statistics on their side. Those who predict everlasting peace are always wrong. <coughs> Nations who are comfortable in the status quo prefer peace. 
Those that would overset the status quo to establish a new order in the world will resort to force if it is within their capability to do so. Violence and force are intrinsic to revolution even as they are to good order. Okay, so violence and force by themselves are not the issue, right? It's the point or the purpose to which they are put. And it can be for revolutionary purposes. We did it ourselves, of course. Right? And we ended up doing, putting it to, to good use for good order. But not everyone has the same, not every regime, every country has the same ambition with respect to that use of force. Now, if some of you like to come down here and sit in the front row, you can do that, because we're not collecting any money from anybody. <coughs> so, Dr. Root published Kingdoms of the Blind in 1977, um, and the warning against the tendency of liberal democracies to deny the probability of war can be seen to be anachronistic, right? I mean, we're talking almost 40 years ago when he wrote it. But it seems to me we would, in our time, uh, do well to heed the conclusion of the book. Why? We have um, terrorism on a global scale. War is rife in the Middle East. We have difficulties with the Iranians, the Russians, and the Chinese, all of whom are looking to alter their circumstances. And the U.S. government itself is divided and polarized, allowing its foreign and defense policies and actions to be constrained by many, many things, not the least of which is what must be the most mindless public policy in the history of the country, sequestration. Right? So here we are living in a very turbulent time, uh, and we have ourselves kind of inward looking and a bit constrained in the way that we are going about our business. So in the conclusion of his book, Dr. Rood conceded that he did not warn of war with the hope of being right. To the contrary, he made clear that he was willing to suffer the indignity of being called foolish if war did not occur. But, after examining the indicators that ought to give rise to preparations for war on the part of the United States, he concluded the book as follows. If the West prepares <coughs> for war and no war comes, we may enjoy the freedom of criticizing ourselves for our foolishness. If war comes and the West is unprepared, not merely to fight, but to win, then there can be no greater folly. Okay, so we got sort of the alpha and the omega here. We got violence and force on the one hand, and, and wisdom and folly on the other, and how do you bring those two things together as you look at the world and, and prepare yourself for the worst and understand that you have to manage those affairs in a way such that you're capable of running the show and it doesn't run you, but to run the show means you really do have to be careful and nuanced. Right? Not every problem is a nail just because you have a hammer. Right? Sometimes you need screwdrivers and pliers and all kinds of other tools in order to be able to construct the kind of international system that you would like to see. So, how did he teach us? Well, he had a number of techniques um, that he employed. One were contemporary press accounts. There isn't one of his students who don't remember him running around with yellowed pieces of paper from the New York Times, the San Francisco Examiner, or some other foreign newspaper, from which he was able to derive uh, most of the trends of international affairs. And the other is that he sent us all out with a list of, oh, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 terms, as he called them, from obscure places on obscure subjects, asking us to go look them up, drove the librarians nuts, 
with the aim of trying to get us to understand what the relationship between those particular things might have been and what the broader environment might, in which they took place or, or for which they were important, what did that broader environment tell us and how did those particular things play? So if we were here today to take on some of the technique that he used in those terms, I'd offer you three, and, and here's where y'all without a piece of paper are going to be in, in uh, sad trouble. The first would be uh, the Ten Great Campaigns. The second would, now remember, we're talking about Asia and particularly China. So the Ten Great Campaigns, that kind of gives you some idea. George III, and I'm telling you, this is what you got on the piece of paper. You got nothing more than that. And the third would be Gimhatitha. And, and you'd be sent off to figure out what that was all about. Now, acknowledging that he was the master of this technique, what I want to do is, is apply that method as well to the question with respect to China and whether indeed it can run its, first its domestic show, how, can it, uh, how well might it be able to run the show on the international stage, and how might we know whether it's giving direction to the show or following a script written by others, right? So is it being run or is it running the show, okay? So if we apply those methods, uh, I'll tell you that he not only taught his classes in international relations, he taught a terrific class in what I'll call constitutionalism. That is the building of the state, the protection of its interests, the accumulation of power and the application of that power in a political context. So what does it take to build a state? Because if you don't have a state, you don't have international relations, QED. So what did it take to build a state? And then we could go on to talk about international relations. So I'll offer you three terms here that will develop a bit in talking about China. The first is uh, Roman road building. The second is coinage. You guys writing this down on your cuffs? And the third is the uh, Sank Ports. What is this guy talking about? Well, fair enough. So let's, let's talk about road building first. Um, that's the Roman road network. All right, what's important about it? Uh, those roads were about binding the disparate possessions of Rome into a cohesive states, a cohesive state. All roads did lead to Rome, but of equal or greater importance was that all roads led from the seat of power to the sources of the empire's power. Its people, its agricultural products, its commodities, tax revenues, and more. Provided the means of governing could be created, deployed, and employed by the state, those in the provinces and the riches they represented would continue to look and travel to Rome for reward and more importantly, for honor. Okay. Now these were significant investments. The roads were estimated to have cost something on the order of a million dollars a mile for some 55,000 miles of roads. Now they were built over the course of the empire. They weren't done all at once. Right? Uh, and, and by way of, of comparison, um, that would have brought the cost to some place in the order of $55 billion. Right? The interstate highway system in the United States is roughly the same length. It costs about 10 times that, 8 times that, $425 billion. OK? 
So we're talking about serious investments having been made. So the role of the infrastructure in building and cementing Roman rule and the strength of the empire, of course, is well established. And it took something on the order of, uh, whoops, of uh, 30 days to get from here to here in Roman times. In 1800, to get from the port of New York to New Orleans took about 30 days. So this is a, a magnificent achievement on the part of Rome. And it was clearly designed to bind the country together. But those roads were not very good for wagons. And why is that important? You can move bulk cargo by ship, but then you've got to put it on a road and take it someplace. Well, yes, but you'd like to get as close as you could, right? So there were, therefore, ports had to be built and infrastructure in those ports. And then there had to be a coast guard to look after the shipping. And then there had to be the taxmen at the ports. You get the picture? As a result of building that infrastructure, the Romans created a state. Well, the Chinese fully appreciate the value of infrastructure development. They'll spend something on the order of $4 trillion through, 19, through 2030. Uh, or nearly 10% of the total global projected cost in infrastructure, $4 trillion. In addition to the roads, uh, there's a bunch of, of urban infrastructure that they're building. And they're investing heavily in road, rail, port, pipeline, and water projects. The national highway system will cost upward of $240 billion by 2020. It's going to spend another $300 billion on high-speed rail. Right. And, like the Romans, they have completed two major aqueducts to bring water from the south to the north. By the way, I don't know if you know this, but Beijing is, for the most part, out of water. Right. So most of their water comes in from the south. They built two aqueducts, they have a third in hand, all for the purposes of feeding the development in the north, binding the south to the north, and the roads are designed to, to bind the coast to the inland parts of the country. And as they did before them, um, they have uh, looked to extend, the Chinese have, their influence to its periphery. Uh, it now has uh, five of the top 10 and seven of the top 15 container ports by volume in the world. Uh, nor are they content to remain at home with their ports. Chinese companies, either independent or state-owned, are investing in ports in, you guys got your pencils out? Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, East Africa, Greece, Brazil, West Africa, Rotterdam, Panama, Seattle, and Los Angeles. And oh, by the way, they're in negotiations to build a canal through Nicaragua to join the Gulf to the Pacific. They are investing to extend their rail lines all the way from uh, what is essentially Chongqing to Moscow and on to Spain, with spurs going off into Southeast Asia, India, Iran, Pakistan, and into the Middle East. They are making tremendous investments either by buying them or extending loans in oil and gas facilities in Central Asia. And, they're and they are positioning themselves, oh by the by, in the case the Arctic really does melt. Uh, they are prepared to exploit the open water in the Northwest Passage shaving 10 days off travel time from Shanghai to Europe. 
This is an ambitious people we're talking about here. Okay? All of this aims to make of China the center of a global network of surface and seaborne transit, supported by a domestic infrastructure able to efficiently manufacture and transport internally the raw, semi-finished, and finished products that make up the global supply chain. And by the way, we haven't even touched on investments in IT, services, steel, cement, shipbuilding, automobile manufacturing, aerospace, coal and natural gas extraction, and we can go on. Tremendous amount of investment taking place in China. All right, so let's turn then to coinage. Now coins, uh, here represented in the top by the English noble, coins were once upon a time real money. That's gold in those coins. And, and the value of that coin was based on the amount of gold that was actually in it. And so the British, to this day, and with respect to this coin here that they mint, which turns out to be platinum, okay, actually still have a ceremony they go through to determine whether or not those coins meet the standards for weights and measures. Okay? So once upon a time, it was money, not just coins or representation of value, it was real money. Um, so, but the coinage evolved as it became more and more inconvenient to be transporting either bullion or those coins, which weighed a significant amount uh, each. Right? We ended up with paper money. And uh, Florence became the banking center of Europe. The bank, by the way, does anybody know the etymology of your local bank? French for a seat. Turns out the Florentines <coughs> sat on benches outside the ports and collected all the money and gave out chits, and, and that's how we got banks. Okay? Now that's a word that would find its way onto a Rudian list. Um, now as time passed, the trading system became increasingly complicated. But throughout it, right, there was one constant, and that was the role of government. Remember, we're talking about state building and, and all the rest in affecting the value of money, the currency uh, which, uh, which was based on it, that is on the value of the money, eventually the direct supply of the currency itself, and it came to establish and enforce contracts associated with property and trade, markets and regulations related to the import and export of money and currency, as well as goods and services. So not only was this the origin of banks, but by the way, it also gave a boon to lawyers. Um, because there had to be a set of regulations that governed the way in which commerce took place inside the state and out. Now the, domestic, the, the U.S. economy um, may be viewed as the epitome of this revolution. It's based on the dollar, uh, both domestically and internationally, which in reality is what? It's an IOU issued by a bank chartered by the government which entitles the bearer to gain from the government. I mean, we go through this, right? I mean, the dollar isn't worth the spit. It's what it represents that has value, right? Um, and all of that is a function of not just domestic regulation, but an international understanding that dollar-denominated trade is a valuable way to trade. You can be sure if you pay somebody in dollars, you are going to get the value of that dollar in return. Okay. So the international economy today is obviously based on the American dollar. There's some debate over whether that's a good or bad thing for us, but it's a fact. Okay? Well, the Chinese uh, are assiduously working to establish their uh, renminbi as a competitor to the dollar. And it makes imminent good sense for them to do so, of course. Um, 
For example, they buy five to six million barrels per day of oil. And having to convert their currency into dollars or have enough foreign exchange on hand to pay for that trade in dollars is cumbersome. It creates friction. It costs them money. All right? And they would very much like to do better than that. They have some upwards of 11% of the world merchandise trade. United States is second at 10 and a half. So 11% of the world trade, they have to keep converting into dollars. Right? This is not a, a, a useful and helpful thing for them. Nor have they lost the fact that the international economy uh, is, has an outsized influence by the United States. And, and it has uh, been highly critical of the United States since the, uh, the recession for its handling both of the recession and the recovery by pointing out, in their view, that United States trade and, and currency and monetary policy is in fact holding back the recovery of the international system. But there's a deeper political reason behind China's determined push to play a, a, a more prominent role, indeed an increasingly central role, in the international political economy. As I say, they would like to see their currency, their trade, their influence on the world be the stabilizing influence because with that comes respect and honor and power. Okay? And they're perfectly happy to pursue all three and see the way to get there uh, through a, a much more central role for themselves in the, in the international economy. Now, it would be a mistake, in my view, to conclude that China's policies on its economy, its money, and so forth, are driven by its economics. I mean, you know, sort of a Marxist interpretation, if you would, of, of Chinese policy. I think it's more accurate to say that its ambition to restore its place in the international system, a place it contends was unjustly taken from it by the West in the mid-19th century, and which, from their point of view, resulted in a sense of humiliation for more than a century, are made possible by the very purposeful development of their economy by the Chinese leadership. What you see is, is not a happenstance. It didn't grow up by, by topsy and turvy. It, it was planned. And it was very cleverly planned and very well done beginning in the 1979 timeframe. So they, they are determined to take their place in the international system. Sang forts. So what, what are these? Uh, that's England, right? King says, okay, you can have some certain rights and privileges down here in your, in the, in your port areas, but when I call you to defend the realm, you're going to come. Okay, that was the deal. So there was a compact established between the crown and the subjects in which they agreed that each had obligations uh, to the other. Right, now, there was no mistaking that at this point that compact was based more on force than trust because you may remember here the Magna Carta, right, which is about 100 years after the thing I just showed you there. What it says down here essentially is that, oh, by the way, uh, we're going to put these 25 guys together and if they can make me do what they say I have to do, I may do so. And once I've acceded, they best not continue to push their advantage because I will not tolerate it. Now that's not the usual reading of the Magna Carta, I understand, but that was the substance of the agreement that was made at the time. Now it evolved and, and, and we hold it now in great reverence. But we have to remember that it was initially based on the concept of force. Okay? 
Now, interestingly, this idea of a compact is also at the heart of the Chinese uh, system of, of government, but it is different from that of the kings in the West who claim their sovereignty by strict heredity, divine right, or both. In that case, in the West, the king's obligations relative to his subjects were for him to calculate. Right? He, he decided what his obligations were. And charters, as, as I note here, were about offsetting power, not by any sovereign right in the people. Right? Now, the Chinese system is a bit different. Um, legitimacy there is, is the dy dynasty is observed to enjoy the mandate of heaven, provided that it fosters and protects and is seen to be doing so by the people, the harmony of society. And that harmony, in turn, is a function of a compact between the court and the people. The emperor had an explicit duty to provide the people with safety from social disruption, war, famine, national disaster, and to minimize the burdens imposed by and the inevitable corruption of the emperor's court, the emperor himself, and all of his functionaries in return for obedience and compliance with the local administration of the court's representatives. Now, they were a highly trained group of people and were highly disinterested in what took place for the most part until, of course, they became uh, themselves corrupted by the fact that they had such enormous influence over local affairs. And so what happened in the Chinese system is eventually uh, you, you, we can historically look at, at the dynastic cycles. Right? And, and if you'll note, there's some regularity into how long they last somewhere between 2, 3, 350, and they run out of steam. And, and the way in which the Chinese deal with that change uh, is essentially to um, kill the current leadership and bring in new leadership. Right? And that's either done internal revolution or by external invasion. But either way, the ruling dynasty is, for the most part, killed, and the new dynasty takes over. Now. The leadership of China uh, through the Chinese Communist Party is reminiscent of, and accepting differences in detail, the dynastic courts. It, its legitimacy, that of the Communist Party, rests not on a mandate of heaven, but on its ability to maintain its preeminence by managing the affairs of the Chinese people while meeting the needs of society. And it's not for nothing that the heirs of the 1949 revolution and others associated with them, including the current president, are known as princelings. Nor is it for nothing that China's President Xi Jinping has taken to explicitly evoking the wisdom of the imperial ages as he seeks to consolidate his hold on power and soothe the disruptive effects of the forced modernization policy he has accelerated. And nor is it for nothing that in return for compliance by the public with the many reforms being undertaken by the Communist Party, which by the way is consolidating power at the center while leaving those out on the periphery less capable of uh, uh, dealing with their own affairs, that even as that consolidation of the party is taking place, there is a purge, and I know no one's said this yet, but there is a purge going on inside the party to make sure that there, is, there will be cadres inside the party who will take direction from the president and the leadership of the country. Because we can't afford to have, can we, the Communist Party acting on its own and not taking directions from the leadership. That won't work. 
Now, some would say that the, the objective of the current reform movement underway is to create uh, what's called the rule of law. I would suggest that it's the wrong preposition. It's the rule by law. So here's the law, and you'll all follow it. Okay, And the party, the apparatus and so forth, makes the law. So it's a rule by law to make sure that the population follows. The constraining factor is they can't make laws which are reacted to by the population with such revulsion that they reject the party and revolt. Okay? So that's the current tension that you see inside the, uh, the communist uh, system inside of China. All right, so where does that take us? So that takes us to today. And what you're looking at here are three different sets of uh, computations of the, uh, the gross domestic product of the United States and the PRC. The PRC is on this side. The United States is on this side. You can see we, the United States, are close to $18,000 uh, billion. They're at about ten, trillion. They're at about 10. This is uh, per capita. Okay, and they're roughly in this neighborhood here, and we're roughly in that neighborhood there, and here it is at purchasing power parity, and you can see they're at about 12, we're at about, can't forget what the number is, 52, so about a factor of four. Okay, so that looks to be uh, a pretty big difference, um, but that's significant growth over a very, very short period of time. The date here is 1981. This is 1990. This is 1981. So in the course of 30-some-odd years, they have taken their economy from near to zero to being one of the largest in the entire world and have, and have gotten to their people an enormous amount of goodness. So here's the uh, poverty uh, rate in China and how it's declined. So this is, again, 1981, same date. Here we are in 2010. Right? The bottom dropped out. Now remember, this is a country of 1.3 billion people. And that's what they've accomplished in an extraordinarily short period of time. And the one on the, the right is where they rank uh, with respect to, uh, to other nations uh, in the world. But it's not only that the poverty rate is down. This is uh, households. Uh, who are middle class, middle class consumers, right? And, and this is roughly 55% of the total number of households in urban settings. This is what it is in the rural setting. Not so good, huh? Um, and that it, that's what it is on the national uh, average. Now, what this tells you is, bless you, um, they've moved a lot of people and will move more people into cities. And why would you do that? Oh, this is a different story. So they, they will move an, an increasing number of people into cities as time goes on. Uh, but what we have is a situation where their growth pattern can't be sustained. Okay? Here's the Chinese growth pattern here. Right? And this is labeled from 2002, which is time zero here. So 
what this is telling you is something on the order of 37% of their GDP growth is a function of investment, and it only grows, and it's up now in the mid to high 40s. These are other countries in that part of the world who have gone through the same experience. Okay? And you can see the curves, you know, a little lower, a little higher, but it's all in the same range. But what's more interesting is at some point, it falls off. And why is that? Well, it's because the amount of investment, the return on a, on a dollar won invested, declines as time goes on, right? The more money you stuff in, the less return you're going to get, and that's where they find themselves. And what, what they're afraid of is that they're going to find themselves in this thing called a middle income trap. Now, there's a great deal of debate over whether such a thing exists. Okay? Is there really a thing called a middle income trap? Well, don't know, but there is some correlation that says if you can get to 57% of the threshold economy, so remember we were at like uh, $52,000, so you got to get to the 20-ish some odd level right, of, of the leading economy in the world. You have enough escape velocity to be able to get your economy to service all the needs of the folks you have out there for all the things that they need to be serviced for. That's the theory. Okay? And if you don't get there, you ain't going to get there and you only have a certain amount of time to accomplish it. That's the theory. All right? Now, there's some debate over whether or not it's true and so on and so forth, but they got to get to at least this number in 2005 prices, which is why the numbers don't quite match, but someplace in that neighborhood, or 57% of, of uh, but they're losing momentum. Okay. So that huge growth pattern they had is not going to continue. And so here they are sitting in this neighborhood in here. Here's where the U here they are here. Here's where the United States sits up here. Breaking through this barrier is what they need to do. And what does it take? Well, you need to get your productivity up to offset wage increases. Their wages are climbing quite dramatically. You need education in the uh, working uh, class to build what's called the knowledge economy. And you've got to get past the processing export. You've all seen the chart, right? How much value added to an iPhone takes place in China? What do you think? A lot or a little? Very little. The design comes from here. The piece parts come from elsewhere. They assemble it. That's all to the good. Okay? But the actual value they're adding is, is not is not spectacular. So you have to get to the point where you climb the value curve in order to be able to generate more money for the economy. But it's not just enough to generate more for the uh, uh, higher value. You also have to, this is consumption in blue, this is capital formation or investment. Okay? So remember I just told you that they're getting less per dollar invested. Yet here's the fraction. Remember I told you they were up in the high 40s. Right, this is 2011, numbers roughly the same. And here's what's happened to their consumption. That's to say the stuff you buy every day. The American economy, and we'll show you one, is somewhere in the neighborhood of 70% is consumption. Okay? They're way the heck down here half of that. 
And, and estimates suggest that they're not going to close that gap for quite a while. So how do you keep your economy going if your investment is buying you less per unit invested of growth, even as your population is anticipating more than they ever had before? And here's the balances compared. We don't really have to go into it. But here's the United States at 15% on investment. And here we are at 72% in terms of consumption. Okay? Completely reversed. Now, that's not bad for, in their case, this is not all bad. The point is, at some point, it has to converge. So how are they going to do it? Well, they want to put people into cities. And why do they want to put people in cities? Well, because as a fraction of the urban, of the population that's in a city, you can see in this scatter plot what you get in the way of GDP per capita. So here's the United States sitting out here. Right? Uh, here's Brazil. Here's China in 2010. They are looking to move something on the order of 350 million people, give or take a few 50 millions, into cities in the next decade. So they're going to move the population of the United States into cities over the next decade for the purposes of generating the kind of return in their economy that's going to create the growth, that's going to look after that middle class which has been created, as I showed you a few moments ago, and oh, by the way, will take care of all the old people who are going to dominate their social security system about the time they get to this point here. And China's population is projected by 20, 30, in the 30 to 50 time frame to actually begin to decline. And their working age population, their age dependency, is going up. So each person in their labor is going to have to support multiple people more than they do today. So how far does that money going to go if they're going to try to get through that trap? Can they do it? This is a big task. So I mentioned to you the investment, and here you see it, big blue blocks. Here's the uh, stimulus they did when we had the, the big crash. Right? Huge amount of money put in. This is their uh, exports. They plummeted. Right? The world had nothing to, no money to buy anything, so they couldn't export it. So they, what they did is they invested. Right? And you can see these, this number here, which is consumption, isn't catching up. Too complicated, don't even try. Nobody has to take any notes. The important thing here is this. Between uh, 09, uh, 91 and 2011, okay, the number out here was 3.9. Don't worry about whether, what that means. The number is now 5. That is to say, how much do you get back for each dollar you're investing? What's the ratios? It's headed in the wrong direction. So you can't get there through investment. That means the economy that they have spent 30 years building ain't going to sustain them. It can't keep doing what it has been doing. It has to change. How are they going to do it? Well, there's a number of ways, and we talked about consumption, but this is about total factor productivity. Um, that's all the stuff that goes into 
um, management, training, education, better processes, okay, all that kind of stuff, right? Uh, you see it took a big jump here. It's a bit of an anomaly. Most of this is a function of their making the transition from crummy processes for their lower end manufacturing to very good manufacturing. So what they really do with the iPhone is they figured out how to produce that thing very, very efficiently. Okay? But as wages go up, transportation costs go up, housing goes up, all right, they're in a bind. So what you want to do is try to get this number up. Okay? That is, total factor productivity is, is a nice multiplier. It, it makes things work better than they might otherwise. But here's where they actually live in terms of the world in productivity. You want to be on this line someplace, and if you look over here as the inset, they're, they're, they're on the wrong end of the curve, and they're below the threshold. Okay. Not only that, while you can see that their growth rate over that 20 years was really substantial. I mean, we didn't do spit. Why? It's a fully mature economy. You wouldn't expect there to be a huge increase in productivity, right? I mean, think about your own productivity. Have we gotten any better? It's a joke. <laughs> but if you, if you said, what is it per worker? Now we're down here. So if you rebalance your economy, what's going to happen? What's going to happen is what we've already seen, which is that their growth rate has declined over the last two years, three years, from north of nine down to seven and a half, I think, or 7.4 is what they claimed uh, for this past year. What this tells you is historical experience is here's South Korea, Japan, and Taiwan coming off of their peak investment right, as a share of GDP. So the year in which investment was at the height, and now look out over a period of 10 years after that, what's the drop? And this is a drop of 57% thereabouts. This is nearly 74 or 5 and that's about 40%, okay? So if you take the Chinese economy and you say, look, it's, it's roughly 10% and you drop it by 40%, you're down in the 6% range, right? Which is about where people think it's headed. So the conference board, a bunch of guys who sit around and gals sit around and worry about this, think it's at about five and a half going out over the medium term. The IMF has them here. The World Bank, always slow. Right? Uh, thinks it's going to remain closer to seven. Right? But the reality is that they're headed down. Okay? So here's an economy used to burbling along at seven, eight, nine, ten percent a year, is now down into the five, four, three percent a year. Still not nothing, better than we're doing. Right? We can't quite crack three. Okay, so that's not bad. But they've got 1.3 billion people to look after. Their demographics are headed in the wrong way. And the costs that they have, uh, that they have yet to pay out, in other words, they made the down payments I told you about investment, that's, yes, I'm, I've started the road, but I've got to finish it. I started the subway, but I have to finish it. 
I started the bridge, but I have to finish it. Right? All of that is looking them in the face. So if you look at their growth projections going out, here's one that says, yeah, they reform, and the best they can do there is someplace in the sixes, and here you see them on some estimates dropping as low as one and a half percent. Okay. I would suggest that that says there's trouble in River City. <laughs> okay. Um, these are some convergence things here. You can see again, even if they reform, if they can get themselves to per capita numbers relative to the United States, they're still at 40%. And if they don't, they're just going to flatline. Okay. Estimates. Now, why is it important to think about growth? If you look at those numbers out there, um, there is a massive difference um, in terms of the actual GDP in the 25-30 time frame, right? So here we're in the 60 to 75. Here we drop below 60, maybe down as low as 40. And here we're down closer to 40. This is 3.5% growth. That's 5% growth, and that's the current 7.25% growth. That's a lot of money that they haven't generated to support their economy. Okay? And more than that, debt, that's a percentage of GDP, is at 250, 260%. They're even worse than we are. Okay? Remember, we deleveraged. You saw the bar before. They pumped money in. That investment is debt. Okay? And, whoops. And most of it is down here. You see in corporate debt in here? This is rolling over loans, as they can't quite pay them, so they go out and get some more money. Money is cheap to borrow because they suppress the interest rates on savings, so you can get the money. Right? So their debt burden has grown uh, dramatically. So can they run the show? If what you did is you set out consciously and purposefully in 1979, maybe a little before, but noticed by the rest of the world in 1979, to create an economy that was going to modernize your country and make it possible for you to take your place in the international system and be accorded the respect that you believe you have been denied for the better part of 100 years, and you find out you maybe don't have quite enough momentum to get you there. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? So, so the CCP does have a problem, doesn't it? Um, now, President uh, Xi has enunciated what he calls the Chinese dream. Okay, and there are a lot of people who don't put a lot of credence in it. I, I do. I, I think that he is trying to create a notion about what it is in the modern world for the Chinese to continue their exceptional view of themselves. The United States is not the only country in the world that looks at its exceptionalism. The Chinese do too. Right? So that old saw, what was it, Lucian Pai, I guess, uh, 
You know, China is a uh, civilization masquerading as a state. Right? They have a great deal of pride in where they have come from, what they have accomplished, and what the rest of the world owes them in the way of respect. So they are trying hard, he is, uh, to give a characterization to what it means to live a Chinese life in the modern world. And in order to do it, he's got to do, in my view, uh, two things. First, he's got to scale back expectations. So he's begun to call the economy that they're moving into uh, the new normal. We're not going back to 10% growth, he's telling his people. Right? And so I've come up, he says, with two centenary goals. Right? When the Communist Party of China marks its 100th founding anniversary in 2021, a moderately prosperous society in all respects will, will be inevitably achieved. All right, so he's got the better part of six years to get there. All right, and what does that mean? It means he's got to push the per capita income above the level of the world average, and he actually has to push it up to about here, right, the equivalent of Mexico. And that is going to be a hard lift. Okay, but nobody, he's telling them, should think that we're still on a curve like we had in the past. Secondly, he says, uh, we're going to be an affluent, in, in 2049, the 100th anniversary of the new China, right? That's the, uh, the uh, triumph of the Communist Party. Um, a modern country in all respects will certainly be fulfilled, and the dream of a great renewal of the Chinese nation will inevitably be accomplished. I think those words are meaningful. We should take them seriously. National leaders, particularly leaders of countries with the kind of history China has and with the kind of potential it has, do not talk this way unless what they are trying to do is inspire their people to make the kinds of sacrifices he knows that they're going to have to make and they know that they're going to have to make in order to be able to be uh, successful as time goes on. Secondly, the Chinese dream means it's not just at home. He's also putting out to the world a notion that there is a way to do it, to, to, to run your domestic economies and the international system with Chinese characteristics. Right? And that has to do with non-interference. It has to do with letting uh, uh, governments make their own choices uh, without uh, the uh, central bank, the coming in and telling you how to invest your dollars, uh, accountants running around everywhere, lawyers, you know, the whole nine yards. We're going to give you the money. Uh, we're going to come in and bring our own people in to do all the building and all the rest. But when we're done, you're going to have a wonderful bridge or you're going to have a wonderful dam and your people will be better off and there are no strings attached. I mean, that's the part of the vision that he is sending out there. In contrast to that of the United States and the West, which quite frankly tends to meddle just a bit in the domestic affairs of the countries that they wish to aid. And secondly, tends to take a, a, a pretty active role in the international system. So what, what they have done is they have set up a set of shadow organizations in the international system. You see them here, right? Which is designed to leverage the current international system in a way that says, look, if you aren't more pliable, if you aren't more willing to give ground 
to, uh, to Chinese interests, we're just going to start to take this thing off in another direction where you're going to have to ask us if you can play. And you saw that come out of the APEX summit, right, as we started talking about the various banks and investments and the New Silk Road and the AIIB, right, he had a full list, President Xi did, of international uh, initiatives to which the United States said, yes, but can we have a climate change agreement? That was important to us. And he said, yes, you're fine, but you need to understand we're doing this other thing here. Right? And, and we are getting ready to have a series of international organizations which are going to have Chinese characteristics and will offer an alternative to your leadership in the world as a whole. So, uh, he's got one underlying problem, though. the place is still run by the Communist Party. And while all of that done by a, a one or a number of, of liberal states, we don't even have to be democracies, but states who are prepared to, to follow the Western traditions, is different in its flexibility, its approach, how it treats others and, and, and so forth, than a state run by the Communist Party, wherein the Communist Party's first and foremost interest is to keep itself in power. And the decisions it makes are made at least as much with a calculation as to whether or not it will remain in power, as to whether or not it will be good for the country. Now, you say that can't be over time, this is going to evolve and it's going to get better, and so I offer you Hong Kong. And you watched it, didn't you? You watched it play out. Um, and they said, no, look, I mean, rule by law. What the agreement said was this. Therefore, you protesters, knock yourselves out, raise your umbrellas, put up your barricades, that's all fine. But in the end, it's not going to change. And we're in charge here. We talked about the need for innovation, for there to be a certain amount of growth and experimentation, right? Total factor productivity. I want to do the processes differently. I don't want to invest in coal. I want to be able to put my money into something else. No, 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 no. Communist Party says it has to go here. Well, that puts a certain number of strictures in place, and, and you end up with this, which is a political approach that says, you are not free to make your own choices. You will make your choices in light of the decisions made by the Communist Party. And perhaps we may be headed to a point where there are decisions made by President Xi. Remember we talked about the purge going on and the changes that are taking place politically. So this is a serious, whoops, a serious thing to be taken to be looked at when you realize that it's this kind of, of activity done freely that makes the difference right, between what might be a prosperous and, and, and peaceful society, and on the one hand, that we're familiar with, and the notion about what harmony means in the Chinese context and what do the Chinese characteristics imply. Well, they at least imply that you're not going to do these things. 
All right, so that brings us about to the end, but I, I didn't want to end this without helping all of you without a piece of paper. So the 10 campaigns were undertaken in the 1770s, 50s, 60s, 70s. And they were designed to secure the periphery of the Chinese empire. And in this particular campaign, um, the Chinese uh, sent an army out that essentially destroyed the Zungar population. And depending on who you want to read, there were either 20,000 of them killed in battle and the other 500,000 sold into slavery, or they were all killed. You know, you can, you can pick your sources and decide. The point is that the Chinese, the, the, the Qing dynasty decided this was a threat, and it was not a threat they were going to abide. And, and for the first and only time, the armed forces were given direction to eliminate that threat, and they did. Okay. It's the only time in, in history, as far as I've been able to determine, and as far as the sources have told me. So the 10 campaigns. Negotiations are never easy. You don't need to read this. King George III sends an emissary to China, says, I want to come to your courts and I want to trade. The, 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 the emperor writes back and says, you don't really have anything we want. As your ambassador can see for himself, we possess all things. I set no value on objects strange or ingenious and have no use for your country's manufactures. Go away. Okay. I run this country. I run this civilization. We don't need that. And by the way, even if you said you wanted to come and live by my rules, I don't believe you could. Because I certainly know my people can't go to your court and live the way you do. So there's a notion here, um, and this is 1793, right, about the exceptionalism of, of China. And lastly, um, the port. This is it down here. Uh, it's, in, it's, it's here in Sri Lanka. And these are the voyages of Admiral He undertaken in uh, 1405 to 1433. He had a fleet that would make your eyes water. Right? He dominated this part of the world. Now, for a variety of reasons, the the emperor said, we're done, we're not doing that anymore. But nonetheless, uh, that was the pattern of behavior. This, I mentioned to you all the ports that the Chinese are interested in having influence over. They are laid over the shipping routes of the world. And it's kind of hard, isn't it, to not see that 700 years later, it's still kind of one world, isn't it? So, that's where we are with our effort to apply the techniques of the Rudian approach. Um, it's designed to help us to understand the factors that are going to make states states, and then what factors make states do what states do. Right? And it leaves you, it seems to me, asking the question, and we can discuss this, can they run the show, or is the show going to run them? Thank you.
sir, Midshipman Corbett. Uh, I was wondering if you could speak to uh, the Chinese's recent development of their Navy, uh, homegrown you know, fighters, homegrown uh, destroyers, new aircraft carriers, and also talk about that in terms of if their growth does stabilize and they do become prosperous, what if they fix? Hmm. You got a need? <coughs> Chinese have a need. Developing sector. Oh. Um, yes, I mean, they spend a lot of money. Um, I mean, what do I know? Uh, you guys are budding naval officers. I'll, I'll wager they are 20 to 30 years from being a competent, professional Navy. That's if everything goes well. That's not to say that if they got themselves into a crisis or a conflict, that they couldn't sink an aircraft carrier. That, that you know, they're big, they're slow, right? Um, they got lots of submarines. They got lots of short-range missiles, medium-range missiles, long-range missiles. They got fighter aircraft, as you point out, okay? Uh, they're probably better aviators than they are seamen. Uh, but that's because they've been flying longer than they've, they've been at sea. I mean, you guys know how hard it is to go to sea. I mean, how many of you have been to sea before you took your first sea tour? Yeah, that's what I thought. It's no different for them. Okay, and you come out of 220 years of tradition, right? So, what, so your question is, what are they going to do if it goes wrong? Well, you can already see the elements of what they're doing, can't you? They're putting a lot of pressure on the Taiwanese to make sure that they don't go off on an independent direction. They're building islets in the South China Sea from which they can stage both their ships and their aircraft, right? They're improving their space systems. They're doing all the things that you would expect them to do if they were going to look to assert themselves on the high seas. Oh, and oh, by the way, they sent a nuke sub into the Indian Ocean. Okay? So they, they will be a serious threat, and they're dangerous today, but they will be a threat as time goes on. How much confidence do you have that the Chinese... Uh, will be able to break the mold, the investment mold that the South Koreans and the Japanese and the Taiwanese fell into because, as you can probably tell, for hundreds of years, uh, the West has not been able to accurately predict China. That's an understatement. <laughs> yeah, good for you. Um, well, the, the, the question, I, I think the question is, do I think they can break their, the, the trajectory they're on? Um, and given that we have been such a poor judge uh, in the past of their development, uh, is there any confidence that we can get the call right? I mean, is that essentially what, what you're asking? Uh, I think that, that it will be easier to get the call right um, because the fact of their involvement in the international trading system is evident. I mean, you can see it. They're either exporting or they're not exporting, right? Um, what will be more difficult is figuring out whether or not the internals of the house are strong or rotten, right? So is the foundation really strong or is it likely to collapse? And that's harder to do because they massage the numbers and, and, and they hide them, okay? So if they're official numbers uh, coming out of the Communist Party, you've got to be skeptical. But as time goes on and you watch the unfolding character of the economy, you can get a pretty good sense of where things sit. So 
Some will argue today that if you look at their unemployment numbers, all right, um, their actual economic growth this past year was 3.3%, not 7.4%. Right, now, that's a big gap. So if, if, you, if you do that kind of simple calculation, then you're obliged right, to go back in and, and figure out which is the more accurate or, or the more likely correct answer. Right? So it's going to take some work. But there's enough evidence there that you can, you can probably do it.